Welcome and thank you for connecting with us at Parkwood Baptist Church. Here at Parkwood, we exist to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. You can find more information about our church at parkwoodonline.org. By visiting our website, you will be able to learn more about Parkwood and our mission. Now join us as we grow together through the teaching of God's Word. Corinthians chapter 13. Today we'll look at verses 1 through 10. Next Sunday we will gather, Lord willing, and we will look at the last part, verses 11 through 14. And then in the weeks to follow, we'll be studying together the gospel of Luke, really, for the months to follow as we work our way through Luke's gospel. As we come to the conclusion today of 2 Corinthians, as we work our way through this end, I pray that the Lord would use this uh, to encourage and instruct you. Uh, this, is, this is really a, a preemptive measure kind of sermon. It's preparing us for ministry among one another, and it is a message to speak into the hearts and lives directly to individuals. I pray that'll be clear today. So 2 Corinthians 13, I invite you to stand as I read the word of the Lord. This is the third time I'm coming to you, Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warn those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Lord, we ask now as we take up your word, you would help us to make sense of this, that you would speak in the hearts and lives of this congregation of believers, and that you would speak in the hearts and lives of individuals, that you would bring people to repentance where necessary, that you would lead us in the ministry of reconciliation, and Lord, that you would show us how to administer the word of God according to the spirit of God. And I pray that just now in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Every time I approach a sermon with similar content to this, I am asked after the service, do you believe that someone can lose their salvation? So let me answer it from the beginning. No, I do not. I do not believe that someone can lose their salvation. That is a basic Baptistic belief. It's one of the distinctions of Baptist life. Of course, unless, of course, you are a free will Baptist, which is distinguishing you away from that. The distinctions of Baptist life is that we believe that a person who is truly saved is saved forever. Now, there are deeper considerations and deeper questions, and it really lies on these two phrases. 
profession of faith and possession of faith. Let me delineate. All people who possess faith in Christ profess their faith in Christ. However, not everyone who professes faith in Christ possesses faith in Christ. In other words, you can say something that you really do not believe. You can state something that is really not a reality. And it really comes down to this. Who or what causes salvation? This is very common in this part of the country. That if somebody makes a profession of faith, then that makes them a Christian. You agree with that? People think that? So you make a profession of faith, it makes you a Christian. That does not make you a Christian. All true Christians make a profession of faith. Making a profession of faith does not make you a Christian. Because if it does, then who does salvation lie with? The person who professes. That is not what the Bible teaches at all. Who causes salvation? God does. It is a work of God. You say, I don't know if I agree with this. Let me just clear it up with the Bible. It is by grace you've been saved by faith, and this is not of yourselves, lest anyone should boast. So it doesn't lie with me. I'll say it this way emphatically, and then I'm going to move on to the sermon. Salvation is entirely a work of God, or it is not salvation. It's God's work. So I am not, this morning, this text this morning is not calling the work of God into question. In fact, it's bringing it to the forefront. So here's the main idea of this text. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. So why does Paul raise this issue? Here's why. There's unrepentant sin among the professing members of the church at Corinth. I'll repeat that sentence again. There is unrepentant sin among the professing members of the church at Corinth. As you move out of chapter 12 into chapter 13, He's told you already he's coming a third time. And then he says he fears when he gets there, he's going to find all of these things going on among them. Quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, impurity, sexual immorality, sensuality. He's concerned that he's going to find unrepentant sin among those who are professing to be followers of Jesus who are make up the church at Corinth. So there are two things that I want you to see in this text that are transpiring, what Paul is doing and what it must teach us. Number one, unrepentant sin must be dealt with. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So Paul's saying, I'm afraid I'm going to find all these things. And Paul says, when I come to you, every charge... Everything that I'm going to deal with, because I'm not here. He's not in cars. He doesn't know what's transpiring. That every charge is brought against someone, the charge being they're living in unrepentant sin, 
It must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now he's appealing to Deuteronomy chapter 19 and to Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So this is a person of firsthand knowledge of the sin. They go to the individual to try to seek to gain their brother, that their brother or sister might repent. If he does not listen, refuses, take one or two others along that there may be that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses then, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or tax collector. So there comes a point to where you say to this person, you're not acting as what you claim to be. So we're going to treat you like you're acting. Like a Gentile or a tax collector. But Paul is saying in the process here is what happens. That, they, that there must be founded information the evidence of two or three witnesses as to what the accusation is. So what is Paul really getting at? He's saying, when I get here, when I get to Corinth, I am not going to receive accusations based on rumors and hearsay. Let me emphatically make a statement to you, and, and this is how I operate. Don't you ever confront someone based off of hearsay. This happens to me regularly. Somebody comes up to me, Pastor, have you heard about so-and-so? And I'm usually like, whoa, whoa. Well, you know, I'm just really concerned. You know, I heard so-and-so is doing such and such and that. Have you seen that? Do you have firsthand knowledge of that? Well, no, but so-and-so told me. And Look, what you just told me is gossip. Now listen, pastorally, I may be concerned about the individual that they're trying to tell me about. I may be looking saying something isn't right, but that's still gossip. That's still hearsay. This is a quote. It is better for someone who is guilty to go unpunished because of the lack of the number of witnesses than to harm an innocent person's reputation with reckless charges. I know of peoples whose reputation in the church have been harmed by a rumor. If you have firsthand knowledge, you confront that brother or sister. You say, well, nobody else has seen it. That's why you take two or three witnesses with you to confront them the second time that it might be found. And you say, what if they deny it? Well, if they deny it, then at that point you have a problem. Have an issue. But here's what I can promise you. Here's what this pastor, somebody asked me about this after the service. I can promise you this, sin will find a person out. You know how often? Every time. Just be patient. Just be patient. It, it, it will not continue. Now, back to verse 2. I warned those who sinned before and all the others as I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking to me. Now, that's a parenthetical statement. Paul's saying, you're accusing me of not being an apostle. I'm about to show you I'm an apostle. When I come back the third time, these people who will not repent, who have been warned by me personally over and over again, these people who, who will not repent, I'm not going to spare them. So at a minimum, he means 1 Corinthians 5, 5, that they tell, he tells the church to deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. 
so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord, that, that he be treated as a tax collector or a Gentile. In other words, he'd be treated like a non-believer if he's going to act like one, that he be turned over to his flesh for it to work itself completely out, that if he is a true believer, he'll be brought to repentance. So it's severe action. But it appears that Paul means something more here. Now, I don't know what he means fully, but it appears he means more. Because I will not spare them, he says, since you seek proof that he's an apostle. That Christ is speaking in him. Now, I can go back to the book of Acts and I can get a little glimpse. Ananias and Sapphira, they come and lie before the apostles. What happens? They both die. 1 John 5, 16 teaches there is a sin unto death. He's saying basically this, Christ is going to have his way and he will not allow unrepentant sin to continue in the life of a believer. Some of you need to hear that. He will not allow unrepentant sin to continue in the life of a believer. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. Now, it sounds like what we're setting up here is punishment, and that's where most of your brains are right now. But I want you to see how Paul turns here, the turn that he makes. We want to think of this power being displayed primarily as punitive, as, as, as punishment. And, and, it, and it could be, and for some will be. But what we need to remember primarily is that the primary work of Christ, the power of Christ is redemptive. He was crucified in weakness. Now that doesn't mean that Christ was powerless. He laid down his life intentionally. He made the decision to submit himself to the will of God. And he laid down his life on our behalf and died, was punished in our place, receiving the penalty for our sin. He was crucified in weakness. He allowed himself to be punished. But, verse 4, but lives by the power of God. Yes, he allowed himself to face the punishment of death on our behalf in our place, but he now lives. The resurrection has transpired. He lives by the power of God. Paul then draws a conclusion. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we live with him by the power of God. So God's power is present within our weakness. It doesn't just remove it. In fact, it doesn't remove our weakness. You know what Christ's power does? It overcomes it. It overcomes our weakness because he, we live with him by the power of God. So let me say it this way. The evidence of the power of God in our lives is our sanctification that we are becoming more and more like Christ. Now let's go over to Romans 6 and see how Paul lays this out. Romans chapter 6. Picking up with verse 5 through verse 11. For we have been united with him in a death like his. We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. 
So we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And let's go back and tie these two things together. What's Paul saying here in Romans? What's being said in 2 Corinthians chapter 13? True believers see their sin and repent. True believers do not harbor and continue in sin with hardened hearts. Now, they may continue in sin for a season, but they do it in absolute misery. Some of you have been there. Some of you are dealing with people there. You can tell they're miserable. They're absolutely under conviction all the time. I don't know why they think their sin's making them happy. It's not. But the resurrection power of Christ overcomes the power of sin. Why? Why does this happen? Because followers of Christ are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. It's not just that Jesus died for you, brothers and sisters. The resurrected Christ lives in you. And it is the Christ in you that overcomes the weakness, that overcomes the sin. So let me illustrate. Recently, I, I, I found out about a young woman who was a part of student ministry many years ago in, in my past. Um, let me just sum up to say she was a difficult young woman. The sin that was done to this young woman is unspeakable. The sin that she got caught up in is unspeakable. She ended up on the streets. For a brief season of time, she was a part of student ministry here where she heard the gospel, but pushed back to it. Ended up on the streets way away from here. And a long story short, she came to faith in Christ. The seeds that were planted early in her life were then brought to fruition through the witness of a local church far away. And she came to faith. Now this young woman is a wife, a mother, a physician, a high school dropout who's now a doctor. You know what she does? She's a doctor in an inner city hospital where she serves young people like her. That's redemption. That is the power of God that is alive in every believer. Now, here's what's true. 
she had to travel down a pathway that everyone who pursues sin has to go. And that's the next point. That self-examination and repentance go hand in hand. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves or do you not realize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test. The word test here is present active command. It's an imperative. Present active. So it's not something once you do. It's a present active. To endeavor to discover the nature or character of something by testing, by making a trial, to put it to the test. The other thing you need to understand about the words examine yourself, test yourself, are in the second person plural. That means Paul's speaking to every believer. He's speaking to the church. We have a shared gospel faith. We are all who are in Christ, we're saved through Christ and through Christ alone. There's one faith once and for all delivered to the saints. There's only one examination. There's not multiple examinations. We're not examining ourselves and we get to do this. Oh God, man, my life was harder than, than other people's. All this was done to me. We use the young lady. All this was done to me and I did all this and I'm far worse. No, 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 no. That's all Paul's trying to say. You're not trying to do a plus minus examination. The examination is very direct. Whether you are what? In the faith. Whether or not you are in the faith, that is, are you in a state of right belief with right convictions and true devotion to Christ? We're not looking at some form of self-validation where the good outweighs the bad. Here's the true question. Are you trusting in Christ alone for your salvation? Here's where sin gets you all messed up. When you give in to sin, you are trusting a functional Savior. You're saying, whatever this sin is, this is what's really setting me free. This is what's really making me happy. Christ will not allow another God before him. Period. However you want to reform Christianity. Are you trusting in Christ alone for salvation? Do you realize, is it, is it clear to you that Christ is in you? Is there evidence that you are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus? Another text that brings these questions to the surface. Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. You, were, you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, that's who you were prior to Christ. He has now reconciled you, made you right with God, in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Verse 23. How's verse 23 start? If. Conditional phrase. If. Indeed, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, in which I, Paul, became a minister. If indeed you continue 
in the faith. You continue to trust in Christ alone for your salvation. That that then translates into stability and steadfastness that you're not shifting, you're not turning somewhere else away from the hope that is in Christ alone. Verse six, I hope that you will find that we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed, for we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. There's a lot going on here. I don't have time to get into a long explanation in this sermon. But here's the core issue. We can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. The truth here must be understood as the gospel. That Paul is asserting that he can never act in any way contrary to the gospel. So am I for the truth or against the truth? Because followers of Christ are always for the truth. They are for the gospel. Now, I'm going to give you some help and counseling here. I'm going to bring you into my pastoral counseling world for a minute, but you need to listen real careful to me and you need to try to apply as best you can what I'm going to say. More than once, more than I want to count, I have dealt with people who profess to be Christians who are caught up in sin. And more than once in talking with them, this gets said. And I'm not sure I believe the Bible. You know, I think, I don't think the Bible speaks to today. Okay? Or, you're really getting serious when somebody says this. Uh, I'm just not sure I believe in Jesus anymore. I'm going to tell you the next question that comes. Now, this question does not come flippant. It doesn't come angry. If it does, I believe you've sinned. It goes like this. Can I ask you something? I really want you to think about this. is that you are doubting what you believe or do you love your sins so much that you're willing to abandon your faith? More than once, God's used that as a wake-up call for people. And here's what's happening. Here's what's happening. I alluded to it a moment ago. Here's what's happening in modern Christianity. We are now baptizing sin and making it okay because the culture's telling us that's what we gotta do and we're making it okay. That's against the truth. And true followers of Christ are never against the truth, ever. In Revelation, the severity, the severity that God brings to a church is he removes its lampstand. Brothers and sisters, we must always, always be for the truth. And what we must call people 
who are wayward is back to the faith, to Christ, who is their only hope. So, what do you do with those who are against the truth? I know what some of you do. You go to Facebook and talk about them. Some of you yell. A lot of you, a lot of you, this is a very common Bible Belt Baptist approach, is you shun them. You think you're functionally Amish. What do you do when people are against the truth? You pray. Look what Paul does. We pray that you may not do wrong. Verse 7. Your restoration is what we pray for. So here's, here's my so what today. Is restoration what you pray for? When you're dealing with someone who is living in unrepentant sin or when you're dealing with yourself, if you're caught up in sin, is, is restoration what you pray for? We are glad when you, we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I am away from you that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. So being severe and hard with people, that's not Paul's goal. He, <coughs> his attempt is not to be harsh. He doesn't want to tear down. The word tear down here means, excuse me, <clears throat> it means to dismantle. It's what a conquering people would come in and do. They would tear a city down, dismantle it. So Paul's saying, I'm, I'm not desired not to tear you down. The desire is to build you up. Now, if I go over to Ephesians, particularly chapter four, it's consumed with this idea of building up. And if I come to the end it's in, in chapter four, verse 29, it says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. So when you're dealing with someone in unrepentant sin, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Losing your temper, saying degrading and hateful things to someone caught up in their sin, you think that's going to lead them to repentance? All that's going to do is lead them to hardness. But only what is good for building up. Now listen. Admonishing someone and telling them the truth about their sin is not corrupting talk. Telling someone they're stupid or you can't, but I can't believe you do that. That's not redemptive. It's only good for building up as fits the occasion that you may give grace to those who hear. Hey, <laughs> you know what that means? That means you give them what they don't deserve. Now, I wonder how many of you with the person you're angry with, you've given them what they've deserved in the last couple of weeks. God's not going to use that. Here's what God uses when you give people what they don't deserve. You give grace to those who hear, and part of that grace is the gospel of Christ. Verse 30. Now we're going to flip it and turn to the other person. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God whom you sealed for the day of redemption. Now, certainly that would be true of the person if you were speaking with corrupting talk instead of building up. 
but let's speak to the person who claims to be a follower of Christ, who would say, in fact, I am a follower of Christ, but you're caught up in sin. Here's what you need to know. You are grieving the Spirit of God. And that needs to matter to you. And you need to repent and turn to Christ. And for those who have knowledge of others, you need to pray for their restoration, that they be restored in mind and heart before God, that they might rest in him, they might find joy in him, and they might find joy again with his people. So brothers and sisters, in an age that has slap lost its mind, where the lines have gotten so blurred as to what Christianity is, Here's my call to each of you. Examine yourselves and see whether you are in the faith. Are you trusting Christ alone? Do you love him more than anything else? And let's be specific. Do you love him more than your sin? Are you finding your rest and joy in him? Christ alone is the way to salvation. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Not just to heaven. He's the way through the rest of this life. He is your salvation, your sanctification, brothers and sisters. And it is the power of Christ who rests in you. Trust and walk in him. Now, if this sermon has created confusion and need for counsel, as soon as it's over, I'm going to be right over there. I'll be available to talk with you. Our pastors are spread out through the lobby. They have blue shirts on. They are there to help and counsel and talk with you. You come to us if we can be of help to you. Let's all pray. Lord Jesus, we confess that you alone save and that you alone are worthy to save that you have provided the new and living way and that through yourself, through your death on the cross and through the power of the resurrection. And that that power, when we believe, opens our eyes and that power resides within us from that point forward that we might rest in you. So I pray that once examining ourselves, we would see that we are of the faith. That's Paul's assumption here. And I pray that that would be true throughout this room. And for those that's not, Lord, I pray that you bring them to repentance, that you would move them to action today to find the help that they need. May we all appeal to our own hearts and to each other that we would turn our eyes now to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We pray in his name. Amen.